Okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, pray, and then we'll uh, jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we once again come before your throne of grace, and we praise you for um, calling us. We praise you for dying for us. We praise you for preserving us, uh, Lord. And we ask that now, as we seek to gather to worship, both through... Um, the preaching and teaching and the singing, uh, Lord, even through the fellowship, I pray that you would be glorified this day, that your name would be lifted up, that your body would be uh, built up and matured uh, in the faith, Lord. Uh, may we be conformed more and more to your image, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So like last week, I actually have another handout. Take one, pass it around, take it home. These are all the verses, well, that were in the book that I told you I was pulling from that break down uh, scripture proofs related to limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance, preservation of the saints. Hopefully you have the one from last week um, whereby you can kind of combine the two um, and continue your study of this at home. These are not all the verses, obviously, but this is a good portion of verses whereby you can start to really hone in your understanding of the doctrines of grace. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, today, we are um, going to continue this look at soteriology, which is just simply the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to do so by looking at the final three points of the doctrines of grace. Um, and so we're going to begin with limited atonement. That is everybody's favorite, right? Uh, limited atonement. That is the one, uh, as we know, that a lot of people will usually take issue with. Um, many people don't have an issue understanding that they're totally depraved. They, they understand that they have sin. Um, usually when they reference themselves as four-point Calvinists, it's usually limited atonement that they're having a tough time reconciling. Um, now, what we have to understand is one of the key words that we're going to be looking at, this doesn't even work, okay, hopefully you guys can see the light blue, uh, one of the key words we're going to be looking at in a couple different ways is that of distinction. If you remember, when we looked at the doctrine of God prior to this, we looked at the creator-creature distinction. And when we consider limited atonement and we consider irresistible grace, we're again going to look at what are we distinguishing between? Because as Calvinists, we don't deny that the atonement is limited, do we? No, there's a reason I'm asking the question. No, we don't deny that it's limited. So that can't be the issue that's at hand here. What we ultimately are looking at is a distinct, distinction as to how we understand the work of Christ. In other words, who, was, who did his work cover? What did, you know, what, you know, was it everybody? Who says that it's everybody? The Arminians, right? The Arminians hold to that Christ died for everybody, that his death was universal. However, as Calvinists, we say, he didn't die for everyone. He died for who? He died for the elect. And so this is the distinguishing aspect. Is it everyone or is it the elect? The Arminians would hold that as a result of Christ dying for everyone, it therefore makes salvation possible possible that everybody has the opportunity as a result of Christ's death the possibility to be saved what we would say as Calvinists is what does his death do it secures I like secures I went with procure only because it starts with p and it goes through uh goes along with possible but the same thing secure procure it actually saves. Doesn't just make salvation possible. This is an important distinction. This is an essential distinction. 
Is Christ's work efficacious? What does efficacious mean? Anybody know? That's right. So it achieves what it was sent out to do. Achieves, let's say, its purpose or its end. What was the purpose of Christ's work? To save sinners. That's it. It was to seek and save the lost. It was to be a propitiation for sin. It was to expiate sin. It was to reconcile us unto God. Not just to make reconciliation possible. Not just to potentially expiate sin and to propitiate the wrath of God. It actually did those things. And this is important because sometimes when we look at the five points of Calvinism, what we do is we say these are just points that we got to move through, points that we need to prove. But at the end of the day, what we have to understand, this is what Beeky says concerning the doctrine of limited atonement. He says, the doctrine of limited atonement is not simply a point of logic in the Calvinistic system. Now, that doesn't mean it logically flows. It would make sense that if we are unconditionally elected, then it would logically follow that for sure he has died for those whom he elected. So it's not saying that it's not logical. What it's saying, it's not just simply that. But what it ultimately comes down to is that it's an integral point of an exegetical understanding of the work of Christ. It comes down to when you read Scripture, how do you understand the work of Christ? And like I said, I mean, that is something uh, essential. Do you understand that his work truly did what it was sent to do, or what he was sent to do, and thereby accomplish? With Arminianism... What does it say here? Arminianism, if he dies for everyone, it would imply that something else is needed. In a sense, it's that Christ's death, it wasn't uh, sufficient. What else is needed under that line of thought? That's right. We need faith. We need to just simply reach out our hand and just... Have faith in God. There's a problem with that. What's the problem with that? We're dead. We looked at total depravity. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not just simply unable. It's just not that we, it's not that we're, we have some sort of disease and sickness that, that makes us unable and we just got to take the medicine. No, it's that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And as I asked last week, have you ever seen a dead person do anything? And so to do this requires that we be made alive. And that, is, that must happen first before we can do anything. And so in some sense, that's why it says we love because he first loved us. Um, we see this, this aspect in Scripture that it wasn't necessarily it wasn't for everyone in the sense as, as Arminians mean it. Um, what we see is that it was for the elect. It was for a peculiar people. It was for his people. And that's why you also hear this ref referred to as particular atonement. It's, you know, if you want another way of looking at it, it was for a particular group of people. Um, we see this testified throughout Scripture. Matthew one twenty one. For you, uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, his people from their sins. John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ephesians five twenty five through twenty six. Husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her. And then Matthew 28, or 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for who? A ransom for many. You see the specificity there when it specifically is referring to the ransom that is being paid. It does not say a ransom for all. It specifically even, you know, couches it in the term of many, which would say not everybody. That would be an exclusive term there. 
And so, like we said, the efficacious work of Christ ultimately points to the fact that it secures uh, salvation. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. Um, one verse that we can look at in particular is Isaiah 55, 11. I have, um, I have just like four brief points in regards to this effi- the efficacious nature of his work. Isaiah 55, 11, So my word will be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void. Uh, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So just as his word will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, so too will the Son of God. His work, uh, his blood, will not, be a shed, will not be shed to no avail. Uh, that is precious blood that is being shed. And so if you're saying in some sense that he died for everybody, you're saying that the blood of Christ in many ways has been wasted on those who never re- reached out the hand of faith, as it were. I can't logically get there. Um, but it will and must accomplish its purpose, and that is to save them, to actually save them from them, their sins, to cleanse them from their sins, and to justify them. Another way to think about this is if you think back to Old Testament typology, the Exodus, okay? What was the Exodus typological of? Redemption. Or salvation. So the question is, he delivered them, he even says, from bondage. It was a picture of being delivered from bondage when they were brought forth out of Egypt. Did they choose that? No, in fact, they actually grumbled and complained (laughs) that they were being brought out. They said, oh, that we could just go back. So I have a question. Did that exodus typologically make it possible, or were they actually delivered from Egypt? They were actually delivered from Egypt. I think we all agree on that. They didn't stay in Egypt. Um, And so that is just an example from what you even see of all the different types and shadows from the Old Testament showing forth what Christ would do. And then like we looked at Matthew 121, here we go. the same way we read this before, he will, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is not, uh, he might save his people. There's a certainty about what he will do, and it will be that he saves his people from their sins. And uh, 1, John, uh, 1 John 2 1, or 2 2, um, with Uh, where it says he is the propitiation for their sins. That is a key aspect. In the Greek, this is in the indicative, not imperative or subjunctive or anything like that. It It speaks of what is, that he is the propitiation for their sins. He has propitiated the wrath of God. And so we see that the work of Christ is not something that merely creates possibility. It is something that brings about a reality. And that is absolutely essential to understand. Based on this understanding of the efficacious work of Christ, we have to believe that it is limited. It's limited in its scope. It's limited in its scope, and it must be that way. Why? Based on what we just looked at regarding his efficacious work. If his work is efficacious then everybody would be saved. And this is where we run into an issue with the consistent thought from an Arminian perspective. If you are saying that he died for everybody and his work is efficacious, then it would follow logically that everybody would be saved. The question is, is everybody saved? No. And so you have to be able to reconcile that. What does that mean? It must be limited, not in its power, not in its effectiveness, but in who it is for. Who it is for. And therefore, it is for the elect. And many people will take issue with that. 
But as we read in Romans 9, who are we to answer to God? Like, who are you, O man, to question God? The fact that he's chose any of us is solely of his good pleasure and purpose. We didn't earn it. We all understand that. And so it's not that, why did he choose? We all heard this quote, right? It's like, not why did he, you know, not choose everybody. It's why did he choose anyone? It goes something like that. You get the idea. It wasn't a perfect quote, but that's the idea. That's the understanding that we have to have. He is the creator-creature distinction we looked at previously. He is God. He is creator. We are creature. Who are we to question him? Instead, as we understand more and more of these points, we should be in awe and marvel at what he has done. Here's the way this can be illustrated, okay? Just visually for those of us that are visual. You can read different writers. You can read different writers, and they all will say this different ways. Uh, Bettner has a, uh, this, this comment about uh, the, a bridge and it spanning the whole chasm, if you will, of hell. Here's all the flames of hell that are seeking to kind of take us in at any time uh, to, to where we rightfully belong. We're over here. This right here is the precipice of death that we all live on every single day. Every day we are in danger of going right over this. Over to, and then you know, the celestial city over here, okay? Arminian doctrine says Christ's work goes to here. This gap what does this gap represent? Faith. You need to complete the remainder. What Calvinists say, what we believe, is here's the cross of Christ, and it reaches, it spans the full gap, as it were. He has done all there is to be done. And he elects us, and he calls us irresistibly to where there is nothing left for us to do. Here, something left to be done. His death, his work wasn't sufficient enough. And that is a dangerous place to be when you say that there's still something that must be done because we understand that salvation truly is the gift of God. And if you've done anything to work for it, it's not a gift. It's wages. It's what you have earned in that sense. And so that is contradictory to what we would see in Scripture. But Christ has done it all. There's nothing left for us to do. Very simple drawing, but this kind of lays it out for you to where they, where they stop and we say, no, 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 nothing of us, all of him. And really along those lines, Romans 9, um, I do want to reference this since I didn't reference it last week. This is phenomenal. It kind of ties the two together between the election of God and his purpose and works, Okay? Romans 9, yeah, uh, 11. Romans 9, 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so there's where we see election. It, they hadn't done anything yet. There was no foreseen action. They hadn't done anything. And he says, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of works. So you see how these two tie. He calls. He has a purpose. It's not based on what we do. And it's not based on works. So to say that his work goes so far than we do here, you're basing it on works. Plain and simple. Does that make sense? Any questions? Yeah, just think about the scope aspect. You know, everyone outside of university is limited to the eternity. Mm -hmm. Calvinism is limited to choice, but you know, Arminianism is limited to power. That's right. Yeah, they're they're completely limiting the power and. Um, yeah, that's why I say the issue isn't. If it's limited, the issue is, is how do we understand the work of Christ at the end of the day? Um, 
Yeah, and so that's why, in some sense, they're, they're not true universalists. If, if they're consistent, they're not necessarily true universalists, because true universalists would say there's no hell, and everybody's saved, and so forth. So that wouldn't be the Arminian position. They fully would acknowledge that people do go to hell. So it would be more of a modified universalist position where, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, he died for everyone, um, and yet people still, you know, they still go to hell. How do you reconcile that? So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I don't think that they would say that, that it's a work. Um, but at the end of the day, again, like we got to look at it for what it would be, though. You're saying this stops here, goes halfway, and there's still something to be done. Well, as far as I'm concerned, we add anything to our salvation that's works at that point. And you're really, I mean, that's when you start getting into justification and how are you justified? Um, it's through Christ's work of lo- alone, you know, uh, that we are justified, not a combination, like a, a sinner. That's where you see the synergistic aspect really in their theology um, from a salvation perspective. Did you have a question? Well, is it considered essential? Pardon? It is considered essential. That's what we're saying. Yeah, and, and, that's, that's, and that's the question I've, I've been struggling with when I watched a lot of the debates and such and, and some of the discussions is that, you know, it, it seems to me that this is an essential doctrine, but you don't see it being discussed anywhere as yeah. an essential doctrine. That, that the people that do not believe or do not follow the five points of Calvin Yeah, so, well, so that came up last week. We're certainly not saying that Armenians aren't saved. Um, and I think even the way that I phrased it last week was that um, there's a lack of consistency with their theology. That's one of the big issues. Um, but I did note exactly what you said, that they're on dangerous ground, if you will, um, because you can so easily slip to one side or another um, and and so there's certainly some danger there, but at the same time, I think at the end of the day, what we really see is that there's just a lack of consistency in what they claim to hold to. You, know, you ask them, is God sovereign? Yes. Over salvation, what well, we choose. Like there's an inconsistency there uh, that can manifest itself. And at the end of the day, that's even where we referenced, you know, Apollos last week, you know, needing to be instructed in the way more accurately. I think that that's really a lot of the way that we would want to interact with our brothers and sisters who don't hold to the five points is seeking to show them the way of God more accurately. Um, you know, it's, it's not a point of condemnation. Uh, we have to be very clear on that. It's not like we, we approach them and argue with them as if they're not saved, but it's really, um, we want to see them mature in the faith. And we were all there at some point, most likely, maybe not all of us, I heard Tanya was kind of reformed out of the gate, but, um, but at the end of the day, like, it is seeking to bring them along. And even when you do that, really, I mean, you're just showing them, by God's grace, like the glory of God and salvation, that all of it is of him, none of it is of us. If we, if we can do this, if this is what we do, does that leave room for boasting? It does. We'll reference 1 Corinthians one thirty and 31 later. Uh, that's kind of what I close with to drive home this very point that he's become everything we need. Everything we need is found in our redemption, our sanctification, uh, and so on and so forth. So if we can do anything, it leaves room for boasting. But that's why the scriptures specifically say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But if we have room for boasting, we can boast in ourselves.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's a work. It's that's a right. Yeah, this proceeds from them because they choose. I think that's a fair point. Like they're saying they have the free will to choose. Right, because I would say we still choose, if you will, but he's the first cause of us choosing. Um, Mm-hmm. They're saying that it comes from a nature that's fallen. That's right. That they in themselves have the ability uh, to exercise and to do what's pleasing that's right. in God's sight when they don't. But a Christian is saying we do it from within nature. That's right. We do it from a regenerated standpoint. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, your doctrine of sin and your understanding of its effects on man will drive, you can see it. Either we say it's not of us and you see the logical points that follow, or on the flip side, you see the other way of what would follow. And so, do you have a question? Yeah, you're saying other religions, they all, it's, it ends up being works-based across the board, that in some way it's based on what we do. Um, and that really is, you know, in some sense, that's the danger area from even our Arminian perspective that we were talking about, that um, you go too far with that and, and you could have some potential issues. Now, the fact that Christ's work is efficacious should certainly be a great comfort to us because it wasn't haphazard. It was intentional. Nothing was left to chance. It was personal. He knew who he was redeeming. That should be remarkable. It wasn't just this blob of people <laughs> that he knew, but he knew each and every single one of us. And so in that way, you could also say it's like intimate, if you will. Um, and then obviously it was efficacious, which was what we've mentioned. Now, before we move on, because time is quickly going, but before we move on, we have to be able to deal with passages that say all, every, world. How do we deal with those? What is the other distinction that's being made? How would you explain that? What's that? Yeah, so that's essentially it. Jew versus Gentile or... Right, and so what you're basically making a distinction is between all uh, without exception or all without distinction. So this is everybody. What we're saying is it's all without distinction, meaning no difference between Jew and Gentile. You know, uh, Christ is all and in all, therefore there's neither Greek, slave, barbarian, Scythian, so on and so forth. You see it in Second Timothy, First uh, Timothy two four, where he says he desires all men to be saved. You got to look right before that, even what he's saying to pray for. It's like kings and people in authority and so forth. And so what we find is that the people that God has called and elected are people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, not all without exception, but distinction. That's right. All different kinds from all different backgrounds, uh, so on and so forth. So we've looked at the election of the Father. We've looked at the efficacious work of the Son. And now we, as it were, enter the realm of the Spirit, the Spirit's work in the role of redemption, which comes down to um, 
what is called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, um, or also, uh, it's also known as uh, the effectual call, uh, the effectual calling of the Spirit. Um, this highlights the triune nature of the work of salvation. It is just phenomenal to where God gets all the glory through and through. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. It is this passage that I think summarizes essentially the whole of what we've been looking at when it comes to the doctrines of grace. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Here's what we, we see. We see what we bring to the table. What we were, it says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I think what we see is the depravity was through and through, reaches to all aspects of who we are relationally, internally. This is what we were doing. And then we see, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. This is talking about God the Father. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, which is interesting because faith would be a deed of righteousness, going back to what we were just looking at, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If there's, I, I mean, listen, you can, we can debate if there's better passages than that to encompass the whole of what we've been looking at, but you see the depravity of man all the way to uh, the work of God in our life to call us out of that and to regenerate us and, and so on and so forth. So there is a distinction that's being made here. Another one. Do we believe that the call can be resisted or rejected? As Calvinists, we would say yes. Do Arminians believe that the call can be rejected? Yes. So where is the point of distinction? What is it? We have to distinguish between what call we are looking at. There's an outward call, and there's an inward call. You fail to make this distinction, and you begin to move down the lines of saying that, you know, grace, if you will, the call can be resisted through and through. And that, I think, is one of the bigger areas. Um, that's not the only issue from an Arminian thought, right? Because they think that we choose of our own free will. And so if we choose, we can also choose to reject. But it also comes down to this distinction on the outward call. What is the outward call? The proclamation of the gospel. Um, it's the gospel going forth. And that gospel goes forth to who? Everyone without distinction. Uh, there's a good chance, I mean, there may be some who have never heard the gospel and so forth, so that's why I specify, like, just without distinction. Uh, but really, it does go forth to the whole world in that sense. And because we've looked and said that not everybody is saved, then we would understand that this is something that can be rejected. What's the inward call? That's right. It's the, uh, it's the, uh, it's the effectual call um, of the Spirit upon us, if you will, upon us internally. That call cannot be rejected. So this cannot be rejected. In other words, if this call is taking, the place, taking place in someone's life, they will eventually and always, like be, they will become a Christian. They will become a Christian. This call does not look the same for everybody in this way. It's not always of the same time frame. 
It can take place over many years, months, sometimes weeks. It's not necessarily like immediate. Um, there's a point where it's immediate in the sense that like he calls and like you repent and you believe. But the workings of how this manifests itself can take place over um, a span of, of time. Um, here's how we see it manifest itself. People are given the ability uh, to understand spiritual things. Is that necessary? Yes. 1 Corinthians 2, 2.14. The natural man right, does not accept the things of the Spirit, and they cannot understand them. Instead, Scripture says that these things are foolishness to him. And so as part of the effectual call, the Spirit gives us understanding to the things. So when they're reading Scripture, right, they see their sin, they see the work of Christ, they understand more of who he is, uh, and that progresses. And sometimes it could be people read and, man, immediate. And there's other times it could be like, oh, man, I was reading, and I didn't understand what I was reading. And then all of a sudden, it was like, boom. So the, the regeneration, does that happen instantly, or can it be over time? Well, the regeneration is going to be made alive. Um, so, you know, I would think that he can allow people to have understanding. Um, and then the regeneration, I would say, would be what takes place when the new birth comes. So, you know, that is life. To be regenerated is to be given life. Um, and so we'll actually get into that in the fourth week of the series on the order of salvation and kind of really walking through, uh, you know, from, we have a hard time distinguishing, so it's more of like a theological way to kind of look at how salvation, like, you know, logically takes place, if you will. Um, they're given a heart of stone. Uh, excuse me, their heart of stone is taken away and they're given a heart of flesh. We already have a heart of stone, so let me just clarify that. And he takes it away, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Notice who's doing it. God is doing it. I will do this. It's not, we take the heart of stone out and then put a heart of flesh in and uh, you know, make the change happen. He does it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Third, man is made willing. If you remember when we looked at total depravity, we said man is unwilling. And so this is quite the change to be made willing. Now, we have to understand that this isn't a coercion against man's will. He so effectually draws them. And over time, it's like, or in you know, a very short amount of time, it's like Christ becomes beautiful to us and we see our need of him and we willingly come. That's what he works in us. Um, that's what we see even in like uh, Psalm, Psalm 110.3. We are made willing in the day of his power. So man, that power of the Spirit comes upon us and brings conviction and we willingly come. Beaky notes this, the elect are passive in their internal calling and regeneration, then by the irresistible work of the Spirit, they are made willing in the day of His power. Here's how Sproul put it. This is, I think, phenomenal just to look at the difference. He says, the Spirit changes the recalcitrant heart of the sinner to make the unwilling willing to come to Christ. He makes the indisposed disposed to Him. The disinclined fully inclined. Our salvation is entirely of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we just see, it's like, man, under this, uh, uh, the, the doctrines of grace, what we just see is the glory of God magnified in redemption. That it is nothing of us. I mean, it is truly remarkable. Um, it's like, I'm ashamed to even think that at, at some point, you know, I would have thought, like, you know, I did this or I chose. Um, it just shows, I mean, we're, our, we're, we're so oriented usward, you know, internally. Any additional comments? What I would recommend is um, chapter 10 of the London Baptist Confession speaks of effectual call or effectual calling. I would highly recommend. Um, it's on the list. I think I listed all the chapters on that handout um, that specifically pertain to what we've been looking at as far as uh, the doctrines of grace. So, 
So now, perseverance of the saints. Um, perseverance of the saints. This point logically follows everything that we've looked at. It also logically follows that whenever they say that somebody can fall from grace, they being the Arminians, that logically follows their doctrinal path, if you will. Uh, that based on what they would say, that there is no assurance that you've chosen, and therefore, in some sense, you can unchoose. Um, and later choose to reject, uh, and so forth. But this follows because if we are unconditionally elected and we're specifically atoned for and irresistibly called, then it would naturally follow that we will, by God's grace, persevere to the end. Uh, or we will be preserved to the end, because this is also referred to as, you know, there's perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints uh, is also how it's often been referred to. And I think both are proper. Both are proper, and I'll explain why here in a minute. Um, this is the distinction being made here, that if we're truly his, we will persevere. There is no falling away. Um, naturally, we have to ask, well, what about those who professed, and like then you know, it would appear as if they fall away. What about them? Um, at the end of the day, we understand like what 1 John 2 says, that they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us to show that they're not of us. And so it is then and, and only then that usually we can make a diagnosis of apostasy. You know, you see like they've gone out, um, and even then it could be that there's a time period in which their, their faith was lagging, whatever the case may be, and then they repent, and, you know, it's... A, that's why it's all the way to the end. We're saved, being saved, will be saved. That aspect is uh, salvation is truly from our perspective, if you will. It's not precarious. Obviously, it's in Christ. We're preserved to the end, but it's one of those things where there's dangers. We're walking the narrow road, and on every side is just apostasy to where we can fall on either way, and he must hold us fast. Uh, that's at the, end of the, at, at the end of the day what it comes down to. And so... Like I said, ultimately under the Arminian position, there's no, if you're consistent, again, this is what it comes down to, if you're consistent, um, there's no assurance of faith. They will say, I chose God, and then you ask them, can you lose your salvation? Well, no. Okay, well, there's an inconsistency there. So that's why I say at the end of the day, like that's what a lot of this comes down to, is which system of thought comes to... Um, uh, bring the most scriptural consistency to the subject, to the topic, uh, to the doctrines that are being held to. Um, but we teach uh, that we're unable to lose our salvation, that because salvation is holy of the Lord from start to finish, we will be preserved. From a preservation aspect, this is where we see it in Scripture. Here's just a couple examples. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... He keeps us from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, and to be the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And that verse should be what flows from us when we understand these doctrines of grace because at the end of the day, we see that it is all his doing. And it's like we should break out into praise just like Paul does there. Uh, Paul, Jude. So used to referring to Paul. So anyway, there we go. Uh, and the next one is from Paul, Philippians 1.6. <laughs> For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And at the same time, we are to be fully of our, aware of our need to persevere to the end. Philippians 2.12-13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But in the same verse, in verse 13, then he says, for it is it God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you see this, this need of we're doing it. He's, he, you know, he's had these good works that were created beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, there is a great need to recognize that we persevere to the end, but we do so because he preserves us to the end. Um, and this, uh, one, more, one more verse, 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And what he's saying is these things are all those virtues that he lists beforehand in the prior verse. So he's saying walk this way. Um, And so we see there's a synergistic aspect to this um, as far as our sanctification and our pursuit of holiness. And this is what Beaky highlights. This is great. He says, God will keep you forever for your perseverance is the fruit of his preservation. So the way he puts that is like exactly like if you were to summarize it, it's like there it is. Our perseverance is the fruit, the result of him preserving us. So this should bring uh, tremendous comfort to us. I think none of us would deny that. Uh, There's an assurance that should come because he's elected us. He's atoned for us. He's called us and he will most certainly bring us safely home. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. This is what we read there. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, we know that that verse certainly was something experienced by Israel historically. However, um, what must not be missed is its application to us as well as the true Israel the church in which he will, he's called us, he's, uh, he's called us by name, he's redeemed us, and he will most assuredly bring us through that if you wanted to, I mean, there may be some, some license here, but the flames of hell will not reach us ever, ever. I'm not saying exegetically that's what the flame burning you refers to, but a little bit of license here, but uh, by extension, yeah. Uh, John 6.39 This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then we see that in verse 44 as well. And so the reality of this assurance is unshakable. The reality of this assurance is unshakable. The issue is, it comes down to the perception of this assurance. The perception of this assurance is obviously, is is at times based on our feelings, and so it can be lacking. And it happens because why? Why does assurance lack? Unbelief, sin, the flesh. Are there times where God can kind of pull back his favorable presence at times? To where you, have a, you feel your need of him more? So it is certainly can be because of sin, unrepentant sin, living in you know, a, a, you know, sin for a time, whatever it may be, in which... There shouldn't be assurance there. So that's a, that's a grace in a sense that you don't have assurance because it's like, what am I doing? And then there's other times where, yeah, he pulls back, if you, as, it, as it were, to where you see more and more your need of him. And at the end of the day, that's for our sanctification and trusting in him and uh, so on and so forth. And so ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, like hopefully what we've seen as we've considered these is the absolute wisdom of God in the plan of salvation, none of us would draw up the plan of salvation this way. We'd say, everybody's saved. Just do what you want. We're all, right? That's what we see in the world. We would not draw up the plan of salvation this way ever. Um, And yet, here we see the full wisdom of God on display uh, to where he gets all the glory. We should marvel at this and we should overflow with thankfulness. Here's what we read. I wanted to end with this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. He says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen. He chose. We're going to see this repeated three times. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world And the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And here's what Christ has 
become to us. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the, like that's the way, like, you know, as I thought through, like, close, I mean, there's no room for us boasting. If we walk away from any of what we've looked at over these five points, it's our boasting must be found in him. He has become to us everything we need. We are not lacking in Christ. Any final comments or questions before we continue our worship? Yeah? Mm. So I would say if they remain in a carnal Christian state, it would manifest that they were never truly saved. Um, now, that's why I specified earlier that there could be a period of sin for a time that one lapses into, as it were, backslides into. Uh, but ultimately, if they are truly the Lord's, they will come to repentance once again and, and manifest good fruit. Um, that's what it ultimately comes down to. And so the aspect of a carnal Christian um, has no place to be found in Scripture at all. I don't think I could emphasize that enough, um, especially in light of how much superficial Christianity is out there. You have a yeah, that's a really bad false teaching. Um, but it, I don't think it's necessarily it's I don't think it's necessarily uh, an Arminian. Mm -hmm. But it's a there's there's many Calvinists as well. We yeah. Hyper Calvinist camps. Yeah. Yeah, you cannot have him as your savior and not have him as your Lord. So the, separating those two is an impossibility. And anyone that holds to that and unwilling to be instructed otherwise, I would not consider them a brother. And I'd say they need to be instructed and, and called to repentance over something like that. Um, we're to be holy as he is holy. Uh, scripture is clear on that. And um, that's not going to look, with, that doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't, but there's a seriousness to having Christ formed in us. Um, and that is what Calvinism ultimately is. These five points just describe soteriology, but Calvinism is the whole of the Reformed spectrum in which we are seeking to live lives to the glory of God. So, okay, let's go worship.